if you're able, would you remain standing and turn to the book of the prophet of Micah, the prophecy of Micah, chapter 6. Micah is a minor prophet that uh, often our pages are still stuck together in those uh, uh, minor prophets. I thank the Lord for bookmarks so I can get there quickly. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of Micah chapter 6. This is the word of our Lord. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your cause before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O your mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you, strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you out up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With the Lord, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you speak to us through your word. We pray that you open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning you in it. For asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, we see that God is patient with his people. God promised to be merciful to a thousand generations. And we see that unfold in, in the Old Testament with his patience with his people. And we all have experienced that in our own lives, that God is patient with us. And even when he confronts his people for their sins, he does it patiently and lovingly. Now, eventually, in the Old Testament, we see Israel being taken captive and uh, taken uh, into a slavery. And we say, man, that, that was quite a judgment upon them. But remember, that followed years and centuries, actually, of God's calling them to repentance. And that's going to be true of the day of the last judgment as well, when at the end of, uh, of his earthly kingdom, the Lord is going to raise the wicked for judgment and they're going to be severely punished for their sins. But that's going to be after thousands of years of pleading with the nations to come to him. Our Lord is patient. And he deals with us, even in judgment, even in confronting us with our sins, lovingly and patiently. The people of God here in Micah had been murmuring against God. They had been saying that they got the short end of the stick in this covenant deal that God had made with them. They are complaining that God was overburdening them. They were, God was wearying them. 
and that they probably would be have been better off with the gods of the nations. So in the passage we read here this morning, God brings the fact the facts of the matter into the picture and convenes a court to judge between God and the people of God who are bringing a uh, an accusation against them. And in verses 1 through 5, we, we find God pleading his case. Now, Israel had broken the covenant that God had made with it. God had all the right to punish them without any explanation. God had all the right to squash them like a bug under his thumb without giving any explanation. And yet, God comes before them and explains what's going on. Uh, the people had forgotten how God had always borne their burdens and were complaining about the new burden that was in the horizon. It's not stated clearly here, uh, but uh, Micah was written about the same time as the prophecy of Isaiah. As a matter of fact, uh, the uh, outline of Micah is the same outline of Isaiah. So if you want, if it's... If you're too lazy to read the 66 chapters in Isaiah, you can read Micah, and you have the, the same uh, general idea there. And we learn that the burden, the, the concern, the thing that the, they're charging God with, it was the presence of the Assyrians just outside of the northern tribes, ready to invade Palestine and take everybody captive there, and said, see, God doesn't love us. Here we are, such a good people, and now the Assyrians are out here, uh, to come and take us captive. The Assyrians in history probably were the, uh, the most cruel of all the world-dominating empires. So the people really feared what they could do to them. And they say, I can't believe that God is going to do that to us. We are so good. We've done everything that He asked us to do. And yet, the Assyrians are coming. So God convenes this court in order to show them that their version of the truth is not actual the actual truth. That their idea of reality is not really what reality is. And yet, instead of coming down on Israel with all his might, God pleads his case before the court of heaven and the court of earth. The picture here is Micah the prophet is the bailiff. You know the bailiff? He's the guy that kind of organizes what's going on. He's the one that swears people in, calls in the witnesses, uh, hands in the evidence to the judge, and so on. So Micah is the bailiff. God is the plaintiff. He's the one now bringing... The people had brought a charge against him, and now he's bringing a charge against the people. And the people are the defendants in this court. And God then calls his creation as witness for his love for his people. Look at verse 1 and 2. Hear now what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, o you mountains, and the, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against the people, and he will contend, contend with Israel. It's interesting that he calls creations to be the witness and the judge of what's true, what is, what, what is true and what the Lord has done for His people. And He calls the mountains and the hills to be the judge and the witness. Why? Because the mountains and the hills have witnessed, have seen, have been present uh, as a witness to everything that God has ever done towards His people. Uh, a commentator in the book of, of, of uh, Micah says, they, that is the mountains, are to be summoned 
to concur in the divine judgment with their knowledge of generations of man's misdeeds upon which they have gazed as silent observers since time immemorial. The mountains have been there and looking at what God had done uh, and what the people had done as well. So they're the perfect, as it were, uh, judge and witness. I think there's another element here. I don't know if, if you remember in the book of Deuteronomy, when they were to, to cross into the promised land, they were to set Levites on one hill or one mountain and Levites on another mountain, and they would uh, utter the blessings and the curses as Israel would walk through the valley between these mountains or these hills, and the mountains would be witness to God's part in the covenant and to Israel's part in the covenant. And now the mountains are again witness to this trial and also judges. And in verses 3 through 5, God presents his case. Look at verse 3. O my people, what have I done to you? God asks Israel, what wrong has he done to them? And note that despite all the unfaithfulness of Israel, God still calls them my people. It's not you people or you wicked ones. God still comes to them and says, says, What have I done against you, my people? What is this charge that you're bringing against, against me? Isn't that encouraging that even when we are not faithful to God, He doesn't abandon us and still looks at us at his, as His people? That should be something that's encouraging. And, and even in the moments of your worst day as far as sin is concerned, God is, still calls you mine. That's the, uh, that's the only comfort, really, that the psalmist had in Psalm 88, uh, which is the only psalm in the Psalter that doesn't end with a resolution of what's going on there. The guy starts the psalm uh, in the bottom of the pit, and then he ends the psalm had, having dug a little further down the bottom of the pit. And yet he prays to the God of my salvation. That God is his God is the consolation that he has, even in a time of struggle. And it's encouraging to us that God calls us still his people, even when we are at our worst. And God wants to know in what way he has wearied them. Look again in verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? This word wearied means to burdened. How, God is asking, how have I burdened you? What is it that I brought upon you that, uh, uh, that you are accusing me of? Now, Israel, Israel accused God of having put so many burdens on their back that they had to seek other gods for relief. They literally were thinking... You know, God is so mean to us and asks so much of us that we actually have to go to the gods of the nations in order to find relief of this burden. We need, we need something to help us cope with this God of ours that is, uh, has wearied us, has burdened us so much. And we look at this situation and think, how dare these people think that God would do something wrong? How dare they think that God has burdened them so much? And yet, we are often guilty of the same thing. We, we rebel against the authorities God has placed over us. We are discontent, unhappy, depressed about the place God has put us in. We refuse to believe that God has, what God has said in His Holy Word. These are all ways of expressing the, what's in our heart, that we think that the things that God calls us to do are actually a burden, not a blessing. Now, all these are sinful actions, and 
and sinful thoughts that must be repented of. And we have a whole lot more in common with uh, Israel in the time of Micah than we would like, we would care to acknowledge. But the beauty of all this is that every time we repent of our sins and turn to Christ, God will lovingly forgive us. There's no time when that's not the truth. Now, when I, when I read this question that God asks you in verse 3, how have I wearied you? I could almost hear God asking me in what way he has burdened me. Because often I, I, I think that way. I think it's true of what we ought we, Maybe not often, but sometimes we think that God has actually burdened us with the things that he's done for us and what he asks us to do. And yet, our God is not in the business of burdening us. He's in the business of unburdening us. Isn't that, is that how, what our Lord says in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and what you will do. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is what my burden is light the trial continues and God still in verse 3 asks for evidence of the wrong that he has done to Israel look at the very last clause of verse 3 he says testify against me tell me what is it show the evidence that I've done something wrong against you and Israel had no evidence of God's unfaithfulness to them and we too tend to forget that God bears whatever burdens he gives us we have no evidence that he has burdened us and we have all kinds of evidence that whatever burden comes to our lives, he carries them for us. Remember what 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Humble yourself before the throne of God, and he in due time will exalt you. And how do we humble ourselves? By casting all our cares, all our burdens on him. For what? For he cares for us. We tend to think about the difficulties of life and forget about the blessings that come from God as well. And we have no evidence, we have no concrete evidence that God burdens us. We have all kinds of evidence that God unburdens us. We all should be able to relate to Pilgrim, to Christian, when in Pilgrim's progress that big burden fell off his back because Christ had taken that burden upon himself. And then the trial continues and God brings evidence to the fact that he's never burdened Israel. In verses 4 through 5, God helps Israel remember his covenant faithfulness to them. He reminds them in verse 4 that he, God, brought deliverance to Israel out of the bondage of slavery. Where he says, For I brought you, in verse 4, up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And not only did God redeem them from the house of bondage, God gave them godly people to lead them. In verse 4, again, it says, And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And on top of that, God protected them from their enemies. In verse 5, it says, Oh, my people, remember how uh, now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. And he revealed himself to them as the righteous Lord. At the end of verse 5 says that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. So here God says, you say that I burdened you. 
You have no evidence of that. But let me get, tell you what is that I actually have done for you, which is to actually lift your burdens, free you from slavery, give you godly leaders to lead you, uh, protect you from your enemies, and reveal myself to you as the righteous God. And as I read this passage, I, uh, I am reminded of God's faithfulness to me. He has delivered me from my sins. He has delivered you from your sins. He has provided godly people to lead me in my life. And he has done the same for you. He has protected me and you against the attacks of Satan. And he has revealed himself to me and to you in his word as righteous. And us as righteous in him through Jesus Christ. So what he says of Israel here, the evidence he has to Israel that he is not a God who burdened them. He has for us as well. He's not a God who has burdened us, yet the opposite, he has unburdened us. And as we read this passage, we all we should be reminded of God's faithfulness to us. As God has put himself in trial on trial, we can see his faithfulness to us. And as they as the people hear what's going on, as the people hear the evidence that God has against them, or just against their claim that he had burdened them, they suddenly go, oops, we made a mistake. There's a change in speaker from verse 5 to verse 6. In verse 6 and 7, the people are speaking. And they realize they made a mistake. They realize that um, God had become a bit upset with them over the false accusations and that God actually had the evidence on his side and, and that uh, if things continue the way they were, they were going to be found guilty in this court. And yet, instead of repenting and turning to God in faith, they decided that they needed to do something to win God's, back, God's favor back. Instead of repenting, they're going to bribe God as if God was like the God of the nations. Look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and how and bow myself before the high God? This is not a godly attitude. This is really the attitude of trying to bribe the Lord. And they first consider presenting a burnt offering with one-year-old calves. In verse 6, it says, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, burnt offering is the same as a sin offering that is completely consumed by fire on the altar. You don't get to eat any of it. Everything is dedicated to the Lord. And they said, we're going to bring calves. Calves was the most expensive offering. That was the desirable offering. But they say, okay, maybe that's not going to be enough. Maybe we need bigger, a bigger bribe that God, so that we can appease God and earn God's favor again. How about if we offer thousands of rams? Look at verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Now, there's escalation here, not just calves. Now we're going to, how about if we bring thousands of rams? Now, one ram was enough. And say, oh, maybe if we bring thousands of rams, then God is really going to think we're the greatest and we'll be able to buy his favor back. Next, now, as they try and say, okay, maybe thousands of rams is not enough. How about if we offer rivers of oil to the Lord. This is olive oil, very expensive, very uh, desirable. What, what if we do that? Look at verse um, 7 again. Will, will, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? 10,000 rivers of oil? How about if we do that? Just bring all the oil that there is to offer to Him. Uh, will, will He be satisfied? Will He win that back? 
And lastly, he said, okay, now we know. You know, still, we need something greater. How about if we offer our firstborn to the Lord? That, for sure, is going to gain the Lord's favor. Look at uh, verse 7 again. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The side note, isn't it interesting that they think that if they give of their firstborn to the Lord, that God, you no know, sacrifice, no kill their firstborn, that God is going to be pleased. And yet the plan of God is for him to give his firstborn, his only begotten son, so that his people may be saved. And notice that every one of these ways that the Israelites mention is not what God prescribed for them to do. They're trying to come up with their own way to earn God's favor, which is an impossibility anyway. Now, a calf was not to be offered as a sin offering. What was the standard animal to be offered as a sin offering? Yes, a, a, a lamb, a sheep. Remember what, what, uh, what John the Baptist calls Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. A few drops of oil is all that God asked for in, in, in sacrifices. A human sacrifice was an abomination to the Lord. So to think that that's how they're going to earn God's favor back. You know, they're coming up with all kinds of inventions to somehow bring God into their presence. They're, they're borrowing from the gods of the nations, thinking that somehow the true God is going to be pleased with the false worship given to the gods of the nation. And yet, the nations, we too at times are tempted to approach God in ways that are not His ways. And God is not interested in that. God is not interested in our inventions on how to approach Him. He wants to be approached the way that He tells us in the Bible, and that's simply through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have to earn His favor because Christ has already earned His favor for us. And that's the only thing that we need to bring before God is the blood of Jesus Christ crucified and risen on our behalf. Note, note also that the Israelites were trying to buy God's forgiveness. In verse 7 says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? No, they, they kept on heightening their offerings. They thought that empty offerings would buy God's forgiveness towards them. And the sad thing is that that's not the case. And the sad thing is that we might find ourselves trying to buy God's favor as well. If I come to church all the time, God won't be bad at me. If I pray long, God will like me. If I suffer a lot for the gospel's sake, God will be my friend. If I punish my body by whatever, I will find favor with God. If I remain in despair, I'll earn some future relief. And all these are thousands of rams, calves, rivers of oil that we're trying to present to the Lord as if our doing is going to do that. The problem is that we cannot do anything nice enough to earn God's favor. Isaiah 64, 6, a, a verse that we are all familiar with, says... All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness, all the, our righteous acts, all the good things we can do, are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, 
And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So the best thing we can do, the, 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 the best thing we can muster up in this life, and we come to offer before God, and all we have in our hands is a bunch of very filthy rags that we say, Here, God, take it. Now I deserve your favor upon me because I've given you all these filthy rags. And that's what the Israelites were doing. That's what we do ourselves sometimes. The thing is, we don't have to do anything to earn God's love. He freely gives it to us. Romans 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who, who was given to us. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still unable to do anything, Christ demonstrated, God demonstrated His love to us in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, there's a change of speaker again. It's not, it's not God. It's not Israel speaking. Now it's Micah the bailiff confronting the people of Israel. And Micah tells them, don't act so silly. Now God has already shown you what He wants from you. In verse 8, Micah says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He has already done that. He already shown you. Micah is referring back to what God had already said in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 13, where in essence he says exactly the same thing as Micah 6, 8. Uh, Israel is acting as if God has never directed them in what to do. And Micah say, to the word and to the, to the prophecies. Go back to the word. That's, that, that's what Isaiah says in chapter 8 of Isaiah. Micah says, don't claim ignorance, God's people. God has already told you exactly what you need to do. And he summarizes here in verse 8, and Micah says, God has shown you. Now, there could be no better shower than God himself to show us what we should do. And if God shows it, it is certain. We don't have to wonder about it. And he says, God has shown you or us, because you use the word man is, is the inclusive word Adam or Adam, that includes humanity or humankind. God has shown to every person what he requires of him or her. There's no mystery in what God requires of us. Now, it, it would be even uh, profitable for us to put our name here when we read this passage. God has shown you, O Tito, what is good. Or, and you can insert your name here because God has done just that and shown you. There's no mystery. And deep down, you all know there's no mystery. And every person in the world knows there's no mystery in what God requires of us. And He's shown us what is good. What is good is what He requires of us. These are synonyms uh, in this passage. If you look at verse 8, He has shown you what is good and what does the Lord require of you. What is good is in parallel with what God requires of you. What God requires of us is not a burden or a sacrifice, but is good. Everything God requires of us is a good thing. And God has shown us what are the four, the four things He requires of us in this verse. Justice, mercifulness, fellowship with Him, and humbleness. And if you combine, so these four, you combine in two pairs of two, you're going to end up with the, greatest two, the, great, the two great commands that our Lord mentions in the New Testament. Justice and mercy... It equates loving your neighbor, fellowship and walking humbly with God. It summarizes the idea or expresses the idea of loving God with all your being. 
And that's what God has called us to do, to love him and to love our neighbors. And in order to love our neighbor, we have to, as it says here, do justice and be merciful to them. Uh, good old John Gill. John Gill is a, uh, a Baptist preacher in England in the 1600s, late 1600s. And in talking about this passage, he says this. It says, to be just, right? Because verse 8 says that uh, God requires us that we do justly, which means to be just. To be just is to hurt no man's person, property, and character, to give to everyone their due, and do as he would desire to be done by which as it is agreeable to the law of God, so the light of nature and what is shown required and taught by it. So John Gill says, if you wanted to do justly, this is what you need to do. You need to hurt no man's person, property, and character. No defamation, no theft, no damage to property. And you need to give everyone their due. Praise, just criticism that they're speaking the truth in love. Uh, and then he says, do as you, you would desire to be done by. Don't do anything that you think you would not like if somebody did that to you. So do justly, walk justly, do justice. That's what God calls us to do. But he also says the biblical love for the neighbor is a merciful love. In verse 8 says, to do justly and to love mercy. This word mercy has a large or broad range of meaning, and they're all represented here. It can mean mercy or kindness or loving kindness or covenant faithfulness or goodness, favor, compassion, goodliness, and uh, pity as well. And what Mike is saying here is that we are not only to be merciful, but we are to love being merciful. That's a desire of our heart as we deal with each other. And then he says also that we are to walk humbly with our God. Now, humility and fellowship with God summarize the greatest commandment of all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. In the Bible, to walk with somebody is to live daily in that person's footsteps. And God wants to have fellowship with us. God wants to, for us to walk with Him daily. Like Adam, we should walk in the garden with God. Like Jacob, we should wrestle with God in prayer. Like Mary, we should sit at Jesus' feet and listen to Him. In worship, we should have a sweet fellowship with Jesus. In devotion, we should listen to His Word as we walk with our God. And He wants us to do that in humility. God wants His people to be humble. And humility is equivalent to selflessness. It's much like what John the Baptist said, that he must decrease so that Christ must, must increase. Humility is to know that although I am not worthy of the air I breathe, God sent his only son to die for me. That's what humility is. And we walk in that way with our God. We like making things complicated. But what God requires of us is not complicated. At least here in the book of, of Micah, where he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So simply do that. In summary, love the Lord your God and love his people as you love yourself. Let us pray together. 
Father in heaven, thank you that you are God who reveals yourself to us. And in your word, we find everything that we're to believe concerning you and what you require of us. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit to understand that. Enable us to respond to what you tell us in your word in faith. Enable us to believe, do, and say the very things that you call us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.